welcome back to another Scottish documentary podcast. Today we will be listening to the highlights from a masterclass with the director and producer of the acclaimed British film The Hard Stop. Hosted by Noe Mandel and in collaboration with Document Film Festival, they will take us through their process when making this cinematic hybrid documentary. It wasn't called The Hard Stop <coughs> for a long time. It had a working title of Down by Law which a lot of you probably be aware is the, also the title of a very uh, classic film by Jim Jarmusch, and, uh, which I love. But, you know, I just, I don't know, we, I just, I'm normally quite good at titles for films. Like, usually that's what comes first, but I, just, I knew we couldn't call it Down By Law because you just can't, you know, not after Jim Jarmusch. But I just couldn't think of anything else. And uh, eventually it was Dion who, and came up with, well, why don't we call it the hard stop after the police operation yeah, that killed Mark? But I also realised, but the hard stop can also refer to this idea of, you know, doing, making a change in your life and coming to a crossroads and, and deciding to not go down a designated path and to stop it and how hard that is to do and how heroic it is for, you know, people who do really attempt to do that. Um, but also, uh, that trailer actually... Um, you know, that it wasn't, that, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that the trailer itself evolved. That was not the first trailer. That's about the third or fourth. And the first one's not that far off from that, but you know, it, it's a thing that sort of evolves as you kind of shoot more and you get to know more and you, maybe you get a first, you know, get a little first little bit of funding. To begin with, I think we spent about a year and a half no funding at all and just working with our own resources. But you had a lot of different scenes, really, but trailers, so it showed that you shot quite a lot, I think. There's also a lot of stuff from YouTube, mm -hmm. and from the good news is with a trailer is you can just use anything, you know, you don't have to think of, worry about copyright, you can just plunder anything that's on the internet, and people do. Yeah. There's people who, I know documentary filmmakers who've made trailers to get their first bit of funding, and their films set in Antarctica or something, and of course they haven't been there, they've just got stuff of them, cleverly cut it together and give it and the music. You know, and... So anyway, look, we didn't, obviously we weren't making a film in Antarctica, we're making a film in Tottenham, so it's, it w and that's not hard for us to get to from West London or from where Dion is in Islington. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, initially we started filming with the available camera that we had, which wasn't... Uh, by, at that time, by any means, like the top sort of spec or camera that you'd want to be using. We, st we started filming this on DV tape. Um, but we were able to get something and we were able to get a trailer together which showed that we had access to these guys and, you know, that bit of Marcus crying at the end. The first trailer, actually, that sequence is quite a lot longer and he really breaks down. It's quite emotional and, you know, I think... It was one of the things, I think, that helped persuade Sundance to get involved with this film. Because Sundance, I mean, we, we love them and they showed us a lot of love and money. <laughs> they back up their love with money. That's what I like about Americans. Love is great. They put it, you know. But Diana wants money. Yeah. She wants money. No, I want money too, believe me. I, yeah, anyway. Yeah, it was development money. Sundance were the first people who 
who, who, who put development into it. It was Sundance and Bertha, based on this trailer. You yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's Dion's idea. Why didn't we submit to Sundance? And I thought she'd finally lost <laughs> the plot completely. <laughs> but what Dion was saying was that actually, think about it. This is 2012, and think about it. This is a story that can resonate in America. Americans will understand this. And this was prior to Trayvon Martin, even. But still, they've got a history of this sort of thing. And uh, sure enough, they must have done. And uh, Sundance, you know, we had quite a few Skype conversations with them about this film, about our project, what we had in mind. And then as they continued to be interested based on those Skype conversations, they sent over one of their emissaries, I suppose, if you want to call it. <laughs> but she's a lovely lady, Kristen Feely, who came over and to actually meet us. And we sat down in Starbucks and talked for a couple of hours. And she got a sense of what we were about as a team. And then from there, we were, did we get, was it, did we go on the lab first and then get funding? Yeah, so we got development. So you actually went to the Sundance lab, yeah. which is very exceptional yeah. for anyone outside the States. That's right, that's right. I mean, so we got the grant development before we met Christine, and because her mission was about the lab and whether or not we would get onto the lab, and so we did. So George went to the story and did that. But also, there's Bertha Foundation just to kind of cover the, where we got funding from and British Film Institute. Um, they came in play. BFI came in play bit later on, but it was quite crucial because at that time we, did, we needed to start editing. So that's when BFI came into play. And, and we were quite surprised that they kind of backed us, you know, considering the story and you know, the controversy and, and, you know, the fact that, well, we did try in early days to pitch to Channel 4 and other TV stations and they really didn't want to know. And I'm sure in part it's the idea that, well, it's the riots, the UK riots, do we want to go there, that kind of thing. So the idea that BFI came on board... Um, yeah. BFI came... Sundance got us started and BFI got us finished with this film. So and Bertha was some, somewhere in the middle. A little bit about the Sundance Lab. Mm. What, as a filmmaker, mm. what did you get out of that lab? Yeah, it's a complete, total game changer as far as this film's concerned. Because I just can't really think of what this film would have been without them. The first thing they said, I mean, you know, and the lab was a part of the process, but the first thing they said was, or they asked a question, um, how long have you, do you think uh, you would want to spend editing this film? What kind of, you know, edit um, uh, time frame have you got in mind? And um, I was kind of thinking, okay, well, they're going to give us some money and let me just think about this. And I was thinking in terms of television. I said, well, I'm just thinking, you know, ideally maybe about 12 weeks. And then they turned around and said, well, actually, what we had more in mind was like 12 months, you know. And uh, they were really clear from the outset that, hey, you know, at least a year. We've known, to, we've known films that go through 16-month uh, edit periods and two years and immediately it was just that feeling of okay wow you know that they, they uh, 
that we can shoot this film and then put it through the most rigorous editing, storytelling process that it can benefit from. And that's what's happened with this film. Uh, it was uh, over a year in the edit. The seven days on the lab, on the edit lab, the Sundance edit lab is basically you go with uh, the director and the editor, go with all of their rushes and their rough cut to Utah. It's Rob, Robert Redford's estate in Utah. And you're there. Yeah, you're there with, I think there's usually about five projects. And they have uh, Sundance Edit Lab advisors who are all the, you know, like the great and the good of the documentary filmmaking world. Um, people like um, Ross McElwee was there. He made a film called Sherman's March, which is a great documentary. I'd recommend to anyone to see that. Um, uh, and um, Joe Beamy was there. Uh, he's made, he's edited over 20 of Werner Herzog's films and he became immediately interested in our film and uh, we became, actually became friends and then he came to London to help us out. He's now, he became the, uh, one of the exec producers on The Hard Stop and um, you know it was just you see, the thing is with the lab, uh, they say, okay, bring, bring, bring your rough cut. We're not going to fix your whole 90-minute film for you in this seven days, but we're going to focus on the 20 minutes of your film. And what we want you to do is focus on the 20 minutes of your film that's the most problematic, that is you're finding the hardest to get kind of fixed or get right. And me and Michael were very clear what that 20 minutes were in the hard stop at that time. It was the first 20 minutes we couldn't somehow make it work. And the problem we had was, uh, as, in terms of telling a story, as we know, set up conflict resolution and how to set up this story. And as far as we were concerned, the story starts with a news event, right? This guy being shot in Tottenham. And then uh, that then, uh, you know, escalating into a riot in Tottenham, which then spreads across London and then to other cities. And we thought, let's start with the news. You know, we'll start with the news archive. And then from there, we'll segue to these guys who knew him, who were there and who, you know, and what they're going through. And this one guy who's being accused of starting it all. And it just, I don't know why, we tried everything. And, you know, both of us, you know, we're both from... Uh, the National Film and Television School. We weren't there at the same time, myself and Michael, but you know, we've been through a pretty hardcore process of editing and telling story and getting it right and taking the middle and putting that at the end and taking the beginning and then swapping that around. We tried everything as far as we were concerned, but it just somehow didn't work. And what the likes of Joe Beamy and Ross McElwee said to us, was they didn't, it wasn't as though they said, right, this is the way you fix it. But it was the way they went about the process of elimination, because they said, well, what, what kind of story are you trying to tell? And I had to think about that. Well, actually, I'm just trying to tell a human story about these guys, really, and what they're going through and their emotions and their humanity. And he said, well, you've got a problem then, because you're starting with news stories, and then you're trying to get back to the humanity. And the emotions. 
If you start with the humanity and the emotions, then you can bring in the news and all of that and bleed in all that later on and put in all that context. But just start with the emotions, just start with the look on their faces and the anger or the, the sadness. And that's basically what we did. And it worked immediately. I mean, you said that you, uh, you know, you've done a lot of documentaries for television, mm. uh, which, of course, use a very different language from uh, cinema documentary, mm. going more for emotions, the other one going mm. more for mm. information. So I can see why you get the temptation to start with news item, uh, would come by default from, kind of from your experience. It's interesting you say that. I don't know why. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, could I show you the kind of television documentaries that I've made in the past? Because it's not, and it is, this is about something I did with Donald McIntyre about the riots in Paris. Mm -hmm. I'll just give you an example of how different you start off a TV documentary about the same sort of subject matter. I'm in a city that's on the brink of civil war. And you guys carry them. A place where cars and buildings burn on a daily basis. A place where violent crime is nearly three times the national average. A place where even tourists can get caught in the mayhem. I've come to Paris to find out why it's one of the world's toughest towns. cities in the world, home to the Eiffel Tower, Thierry Henry, and 11 million people. The French capital is a mecca for tourists, with almost 28 million visitors a year, over a million of them Brits, lured by culture, cuisine, and a certain je ne sais quoi. But Paris also has a dirty little secret. As well as being the tourist capital of Europe, it's also the rising capital. In the last few years, Paris has been besieged by civil unrest. On one side are the young second-generation immigrants from the suburbs who feel discriminated against by French society. On the other side are the forces of law and order, as led now by the hardline president, Nicolas Sarkozy. Paris has seen two major explosions of civil unrest in the last four years. In 2005, almost 10,000 vehicles were set alight. In 2007, saw 30 police officers wounded by rioters' gunfire. I've come to Paris to find out why this city of culture is being torn apart by riots. And as the victims start piling up, I meet someone who's intent on turning these riots into an all-out race war on the boulevards of the Champs-Élysées. So that's what I mean by not the voice of 
that I'd heard, you know. Um, you know, George speak a lot about NFTs, but you know, and, and I think there's this kind of teaching there that says it is almost kind of default is to have this presenter-led kind of idea. So you know, in terms of our conversation, there was always this idea of well, I just think that this uh, this notion of in order to to um, to speak to a, a wide audience. We must enter the story through a presenter. Is just I'm sorry. It's just not. It's just not 21st century. And so there's this. Uh, you know, I'm just saying. I, that was no, a kind of conversation. I just think that we need to kind of. It may well have its place. Personally, I'm not sure if it has its place these days. It has its place on television. On television, yes, but unfortunately, uh, we've still got cinema. <laughs> a little space. I mean, the great difference for me is one feeling close to your characters and their stories and, uh, and despite not being from Tottenham, despite not going, you know, going there on a regular basis, I'm able to feel I'm included in your story. In the, this one, I'm completely go, you know, just... The thing is, you know, the, the Donald McIntyre's of this world and Ross Kemp, a lot of the time, what the idea is that they then become the sort of... Um, the, not just the narrator, but the sort of mediator, because they is someone who, who can who takes you somewhere, and you, as long as you're invested in that person, you trust in them, then they, you know you feel like you're in safe hands, and then you go and and discover this world and the people within this world with them, and that was an option with this. Yeah. I felt, and we felt, because it could have been as much as I would hate, because I'm actually genuinely believe it or not someone who really. I really hate the sound of my own voice. I don't like to see myself on camera, anything like that. But I've done it before where I felt it is necessary. And um, I've got an example of a film that I made when I was at film school where it was actually ostensibly as a film about my twin brother. But it's also because it's about my twin brother, it kind of had to be about me. But I was luckily for me, I was behind the camera most of the time. And um, you know, it's, so the film's sort of narrated by me, but it's just that kind of made, made sense. Mm -hmm. That was an option to do that with this, and it's something we considered, and it was still being considered right quite late into the editing. And I'm so glad that I think we did the right thing, which was just to really stick with this principle of, well, they're narrating their own story here. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, I, 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 I do think we did the right thing with that. But I mean, in Hard uh, Stop, I felt I was on a journey, but with you, the filmmaker, and, and in a way, I mean, especially the way the film starts at the beginning, I mm. feel there is enough trust there mm. for us to put into the filmmaker, even if we don't know, you know who that person is, to say, okay, I'm going to be discovering something which yeah, I'm I mean, not familiar with, but I'm. Because I'm a middle-class posh boy from West London, and I don't, you know, my experience of Broadwood Farm is like, I don't know, I remember in the 80s reading about it and seeing the riots and thinking, shit, I'm glad I don't live around there. And, uh, you know, I just felt in the hard stop, it's enough when you hear me from behind the camera saying, oh, does it get a bit hairy around here, you know? And Mark is saying, what the hell, what, what? What the hell are you talking about? What does that mean? <laughs> but um, I, I, I kind of remember um, a one of the tutors at 
film school saying, start off telling stories about things that you know, that, uh, you know, don't try and go to Antarctica, sort of, in your first film as a filmmaker or something. You know, just start with things you know. And I thought, oh, well, my twin brother is something that I think I know. And yeah. furthermore, he's not going to be able to say no when I ask him to be. Uh, uh, but it actually, and funny enough, the process of making this film, actually I found out things about my twin brother that I didn't really, I, I was probably kind of subconsciously aware of, but I just didn't really, one of the things I realised about him was that he actually loves being the centre of attention, you know, he's like my mum, and he's loved having the camera following him around and just warm to it. And actually after this was made, he, was one, he went on one of the first reality TV shows soon after Big Brother, it's called Jailbreak. There's a bunch of them in jail, and anyway, um, <laughs> you know, and I ne hadn't really thought about, about him like that before. But um, you know, it was just—I um, suppose—it was also a kind of an exercise in just trying to have some sort of consciousness and sensitivity about putting the camera on people and you know, filming people's lives. And I, I, I'd like to think that it, doing, say, something like this. It's something that was also brought to bear a little bit in the hard stop and trying to get access um, and trying, you know, just gaining the trust of Marcus and Curtis. And as I said last night in the Q and A, uh, I, at a point, thought started to think to myself, maybe I've literally, I've actually transgressed the the line from, you know, professional distance to being totally sort of. Um, you know, intertwined uh, with, uh, you know, your contributors' lives. And it was just, you know, I just thought this is, maybe it's gone too far here. But um, I'm just not sure it could have been done any other way with Marcus and Curtis. And I'd like to think that the results are up on the screen. Because, you know, Marcus and Curtis, they come from a background where they've got every reason to really seriously mistrust anyone who's got anything to do with the media especially after what happened to their friend, because, you know, the f it was the f two things happened. He was shot and killed, and then the media came and totally misrepresented the story of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing that went out in the media was that it was a shootout. And okay, they retracted that a few days later, but by then it's too late. That's the first impression everyone got, including myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hawking's a line of, in a way, I mean, ethics is a big thing in, uh, in documentary and mm. knowing, you know, well, it's not just about crossing the lines, kind of knowing you as a filmmaker where you set kind of never found, because different filmmakers have different boundaries, kind of, you know, for, for that sort of line that we sometimes cross and, or not cross, kind of, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, here it's interesting because obviously you've got direct access being your brother. But in a way, you need to create kind of the where the boundaries are in terms of what is it that you explore. Even even with your own family, you know this story. There's, I mean, it's only twenty minutes long, and uh, you know, but it's there's still because we hadn't seen our dad. We go to Ghana to see our dad. We hadn't seen him for twenty years, and my dad was a military man in Ghana, and actually my twin brother was a military man over here. He was an officer over here. But, you know, there's all sorts of things in families, uh, as we know, that um, are very, um, what's the word, um, 
delicate. And, uh, you know, um, one of the things that in, in this film, and one part of what it's about is also about identity and uh, uh, for me trying to find, figure out well, what's my identity, am I British, am I Ghanaian, well, what are somewhere in the middle, and Ben's also, am I British, am I Ghanaian, also his identity as a gay man who only recently, quote unquote, I actually hate this term, but come out of the closet, I don't really like that term, but who, you know, and my dad being a kind of old school Ghanaian man and all of this kind of thing, who just had no way of really grasping the, that, this idea of someone being themselves and, and, and having the courage to, to own up to their identity. And so that was the elephant in the living room during that trip. And I was sort of behind the camera, kind of just filming, observing it. You know, and uh, I think my dad eventually saw this film, but by then we'd, we'd come back to the UK and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's, um, they never, my, Ben and my dad never really reconciled their differences. I think there was a phone call from my dad and it, the, you know, it opened with him quoting passages from the Bible and all that. And I think Ben probably should put the phone down shortly thereafter and, you know. So there's a, I'm just saying there's a lot of subtext in this and there was, for me, making a film, there's a lot of things of well, what should I, how much should I put in there and actually Ben, in this film, when you see it, he never actually says, I'm gay or he just says, uh, it's a line of voiceover where he says, I don't think dad could ever really come to terms with my sexuality. Mm -hmm. That's enough thing he gave. Yeah. But in the stop, you also have kind of different moments where allow your interpretation uh, to, uh, to come in. Um, in the sense that, I mean, what, let me ask, what do you think, what do you think you actually took more liberties in terms of doing an interpretation of the story? <coughs> more so than the actuality of what they're saying or stuff. Because, and I think rightly so to get to a truth, uh, you know, because there's that, obviously, that idea that, you know, that okay, observation material, show it on its own, verite, means that's the truth. But actually, you know, clearly the, the truth lies elsewhere as well, you know. Um, so it's, it's like, so I think that I think in the construction and and the decisions in terms of showing. So for this film, I think there was you know we discussed this. There's this. What was important? Do we show Marcus? Sorry, Mark Duggan, and you know and, and unpack the idea that did he have the gun? You know, you know, did, did was there a, another gun supplier that the police should have actually focused on? We could have got into that investigative narrative. Um, but I think we felt that it was much better to look at the idea of the, uh, you know, the kind of honest, the held belief notion and unpack that. And, and, and if you start unpacking that, then you're looking at the, the black male, then, you know, and, then, and more so you're also looking at where they're coming from in terms of the farm and the environment 
Um, and so you start looking at the social context and the layered historical context, and you start making decisions as to... And as an extension to what Dion's saying, actually, and to answer your question, I think probably the biggest liberty we've taken was probably with, say, the character of Curtis, really. Because, you know, and it took a while for us to get, get this right in the edit. Because, you know, you've got a point where the man's going out, basically, trying to get presents for his kids in Christmas. You, you know, there's a side to Curtis's story which isn't really anything to do with Mark Duggan. It's more Benefit Street, right? Yeah, you, you know that, right? That it could potentially, and we had quite a few, you know, struggles in the edit making sure we didn't get too far away from Mark Duggan, the police shooting him, the UK riots. Because you're telling a story essentially about a man just trying to get employment and put food on the table. Also, you're telling a story about a man who grew up on the same estate with Mark Duggan, who's one of his childhood friends, who um, you know, has got this relationship with the police where in the film you can see how volatile that relationship is. Um, but uh, I'm kind of delighted with that in some ways, you know, I still, because I think if you just had a film where it was just Marcus and what he went through and, you know, going back to 1985 and the injustice of that and then him going to prison, you know, I think, it, I always think you'd still be open to a certain criticism of, and this might be just me, or a certain, not, if not criticism, a certain uh, possible, you know, belief system or perception of guys like this that, well, you're doing what you're doing, you're living a certain way, and then when it all goes tits up, then you start crying for justice. But, you know, if you want to be a real tough guy, why not just try getting a bloody job like everyone else and doing that nine to five graft and the grind that most of us have to do? See how you know, and you and if, yeah, exactly, you know, and uh, try 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 working in Sainsbury's. Forget, you know, it's great when you're making five hundred pound a day, but how about getting up every day and just going out and and doing what's needed, cleaning toilets, for instance? You haven't got the character to do that, but actually, guess what? We've got a guy who really does, and that really is Curtis. I mean, that really is him. It's not. We didn't just select certain bits and kind of edit around and cut it. He's, he's, I mean, that job you see him doing at the end, where he's clean, to clean toilets was just part of that job. The other part involved basically patrolling the parks around a certain part of London, uh, you know, around a 10 mile, 20 mile radius. But it's, the job started at about 6 a.m. But for him to start to get to the job, meant he had to get up at 5 a.m. He was doing that job for about six months, seven months. He's just constantly on the go. I don't know how he does it, to be honest. So. Yeah, so it was important to, to show how hard it is, I guess, for, for you know, this idea that it's, I mean, it certainly was at a time, I mean, and in the film recently, we added that as well, the idea of what unemployment rate was during that period, because you know this, I think obviously the, the UK riots and some of this is about well, a lot about the post-crisis and, and how you know people were were, were struggling. So not least, you know, persons of their um, backgrounds. So 
so yeah, it was quite important to, to kind of, uh, you know, add that within the context of this, um, of Mark Duggan narrative. I mean, I don't know, I mean, I, I think we're single, I mean, I think we're, again, in terms of general, I think we've come past the kind of single narrative, this idea of, um, you know, I think, you know, it's obviously we need to reflect that these, these, these other factors that are all connected, you know, what's happening for us is all connected. So, yes, when they rioted, some people in Tottenham was totally connected to Mark Duggan's death, but then others were rioting or you know protesting because of other frustrations and a lot of that was to do with unemployment and what was going on in their lives. It all connects and it all connects and it goes. I'd like to bring you lovely audience into the conversation. Sorry for keeping uh, <laughs> it. I've got more questions but uh, please get uh, I know you touched on it briefly about you know crossing this line of how close you become to these people, you know, and the years of filming, and you have to keep you become part of their lives, they become part of yours. But then you step away from that and come to the edit, and you know, then you have to see that that footage. And, uh, how do you do that? How, how or how is that process of being so in someone's life and then being so in yours, and then you have to sit down and be like, okay. Well, by the time you know we were in the edit suite, uh, to be honest, we were still filming as well and you know it wasn't it was sometimes it's like you know I'd be listening to Marcus's voice all day in the edit suite and then I'd be listening to it on the phone in that evening or when I went to meet him and I was like I can't get away from this bloody guy you know it's like it's just either I'm seeing him in on the screen or you know real life or face to face so it just um you know, I don't know if you're saying, if you're, uh, if you're, what your, your question is also is what, how do you have a little bit of objective distance or, some of that is, is, some of that is just by the nature of making films because it's a collaborative medium. So it doesn't matter how subjective or close I am, you've also got Dion and then you've got the editor he doesn't have to deal, he's never even met Marcus. He's just looking at the material and he's looking at what's on the timeline. You know, and, uh, and then you've got a, an exec producer, like I mentioned, Joe Beanie, who's going to come into the edit suite and hasn't seen anything. All he's going to see is what's in front of him, what works in terms of telling this story. And uh, sure enough, you know, there's scenes which we had to lose, which some of them were great scenes. You know, you, you, you know you, you, this process is like most processes that I've had making films where you have to lose some of your favourite bits in order to make what's left better. And that definitely happened here. I mean, there's, uh, uh, just to pick up on it, there's times um, where, I know George was having a conversation with the editor, where, for example, with Curtis, would come over, you know, quite, you know, cause fun, quite funny and, um, you know, kind of, and I think generally he was coming over like the Joker. And then I remember there was quite a lot of tension in the edit suite where George was wanted to make sure, you know, that we reflect Curtis 
serious side as well, and, and you know, not just have him as just this line wire. You know, um, I remember that. And also, I mean, so on the other side of that, there was Marcus, who, again, you know, was coming over a bit um, kind of too scary. <laughs> you know, they, it's different perspectives because uh, you know, they, they, Dion's right. There was a point at which you know, that, uh, that editor, uh, one particular editor who had a lot of, you know, talents and brought a lot to the table in one area, but maybe was, you know, their perception on, say, someone like Curtis was not quite right because yeah, Curtis does have that kind of funny side, that entertaining side, but that's not all he was about. And after a while, you know, if you're not careful, you've just gone too far away from what we're trying to do here and you know there's some funny scenes with Curtis at home with his kids and his kids basically kind of just running rampant and you know he's basically being almost kind of um, just constantly sort of bashed up by his kids kind of thing and heckled and all the rest of it but um, you know I just think um, what was I going to say you know, I think there's enough of a balance in the film. There's, 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 there's lightness in the film, there's humorous moments, mostly from Curtis. Um, but just enough, and it's just trying to get that, that right balance, I suppose. Yeah, I also love kind of Evie's um, uh, widow when um, all the male friends are kind of in the building, kind of Mark has been this amazing guy. Uh, mm. And at uh, first, yeah, at the beginning, he was kind mm. of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, you know, yeah. quickly lost, kind of, you know, the courtship, kind of, you know. Yeah. And I think it was lovely the way she felt that she could come into the film and, and, and say something which is not just as flattering as all the kind of, you know, the oh. men around. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's just a, it's, it's just a ring of truth, isn't it? And I always think, um, I don't know, I've always got a problem with films that, are just emotionally sort of one note kind of thing and um, I just think real life is you know I don't know you know most of us I mean if you my experience of going to funerals or something there's always a bit of humour there or something you know and I kind of feel that with this and that's one of the things that I think I, I was really attracted to with Marcus and Curtis quite from the early days where you just got that little kind of slight kind of wicked sense of humour or unexpected sense of humour from them immediately. And I mean, Marcus even, is, I don't know how much of it's in the film, but he, you know, in that, in that bail hostel, he was constantly messing around, doing things to, to make himself laugh and to make other people laugh and to amuse himself. And I guess looking back on it, some of that is a coping mechanism as well. But you know, you also think to yourself, I mean, he was barely eating, you know, that's why he's actually so skinny. When he comes, into, comes out of prison, that's probably more like his natural weight. But, you know, you can imagine how much stress he must have been going through at that time, because he probably, he thought he was looking at maybe 10 years for being the person who started it all, considering people getting two years for stealing a, you know, a pack of chewing gum at the time. I've got to say, I, I didn't know what message that I wanted to film to have, but I, I wanted to find out, I wanted to, to find, uh, you know, uh, to um, kind of, I just wanted to find out something. And uh, I don't even know if I knew what I wanted to find out, but 
you know, that is something that I think I, I was taught at film school is a valid way to go about making a film where, you, you know, you're following your instincts, you know, and uh, you, uh, you know, I, I, it wasn't so much wanting to say something, it was wanting to find out something. I wanted to find not the truth, but a truth. And that is something that I think I've, that's, that's something that I think I've, I've uh, as motivated probably how I go about making most documentaries. Because there's no uh, singular truth that I don't think about anything. You know, I just think, you know, I didn't, you know, it soon became clear to me making this, that you're not gonna find out the truth about Mark Duggan being killed or what happened. There's no way. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, the, the truth can, is probably, you, you know, there's Mark Duggan who knew exactly what happened and they were never going to get the truth from him. And then there's probably a, several police officers who are on the scene and I don't suppose we'll be getting the truth from them anytime soon. Other than that, you've just got all kinds of different perceptions and perspectives. And I just thought to myself, well, actually, um, you know, the truth, I think, in this story is not going to come, not even going to come from what Marcus and Curtis say. Again, subjective truth and their point of view perception, which they're quite open about. They're saying, we love the guy, we grew up with him, this is, he was our brother. So it's bound to be subjective. But the truth, I felt, would come from what you see them doing. And in storytelling, character is revealed through action. I just thought, okay, an observational film following these guys over the course of two years, you're going to see the truth about in terms of what they're about by following them with the camera. And that's what I think you get. Again, you know, I think it's one thing when you're making a film like this about two grown adults, you know, in their mid-30s. It's another thing when you're dealing with a 13-year-old child whose father's been killed in these circumstances, who's very vulnerable. And um, that was something we've, I think we felt very responsible about. We knew we had the approval of Simone, of his mum. But actually, it wasn't really about, it was never really going to be about Kamani Duggan. And it was, um, you know, it was something that just happened. Uh, I, you know, we were in the edit, we were thinking, okay, what, how are we going to tell this story? And, and your concern is how do you make that story sustain 90 minutes? And in order for it to sustain 90 minutes, you have to employ the techniques of, um, you know, somewhat. I suppose, classical storytelling. So, you know, set up conflict resolution, characters with definable story arcs and a definable narrative arc. And as such, with Marcus, the, his, his, uh, his character's conflict or the thing that he has to, the challenge or the obstacles that he has to overcome is um, a, an internal conflict that he has. And it's about loyalty. And this is a man who's got loyalty actually tattooed on his neck. And his conflict is between being, staying loyal to his people, the Mark Duggans of this world, his old gang, if you want to call it that, from Broadwater Farm, and being a good person and being a, a, a man of God 
and being a good citizen because there's a bit of a conflict there, right? And um, he resolves that conflict at the end by mentoring to young people such as Kamani Duggan because now he can be loyal to his old friends and specifically Mark is his son and he can still be a good person and an asset to society. And it just happened, I mean, I don't know, it was, uh, I don't know, you know, if, I guess if it hadn't happened we would have found some other way of resolving the, the story in the edit, but it did happen, you know, so. Um, I think, I guess it's, it's, it's an idea of showing, I mean, it's a difficult one to answer when we say younger people, because I, I think this film has always, well, my role in making it and producing it has always been about reflecting to a more, uh, a kind of uh, middle class uh, community. And, you know, and this idea that we've kind of forgotten about so-called underclass world and, um, and perhaps at the same time obviously targets perhaps the police and um, you know kind of legal and justice system um, so I mean so yeah so it's a bit I feel uncomfortable <laughs> saying you know it's we, we uh, Marcus the lead character did show it to um, to students at Hackney College and that worked really well mm -hmm. And I think that conversation he was having with them was about, um, I mean, he feels he, he wants to talk about their, their, their engagement with the police and how, you know, you know police policy, what's happening, you know, stop and search, things like that. So, I mean, I think it does have a role. You can use it as a tool in schools to just um, have a dialogue about, um, Certainly, obviously, not to get involved in, 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 in gang, gangs and, and kind of involved with drugs. But I mean, I, I think the general of the film, you know, certainly the fact that we landed with that statistics at the end wasn't made for the purpose of let's just go and speak to the community and young people because there's, it's obviously there's an injustice that's gone on here and it's, it's, and, and it's related to the state. And the police, and so, um, yeah. I guess we, what Dion's saying is, you know, often with these things, suddenly the emphasis is uh, is on, okay, the community and the young people from that community need to do something to change themselves or to change what they do, and the, you know, and actually, yeah, we know in this film that we see Marx and Curtis in, in many ways doing going through that process of change, but we're also very self-conscious of this idea that this film should now be seen by young people who come from estates like Broadwater Farm or I know you've got the equivalent here in Glasgow, you know, because those people should somehow find some way of changing themselves. Well, actually, uh, you know, what about the problem of the police uh, or not changing, or the, the state or, you know, the people, you know, as you were pointing out, who, who uh, you know, uh, never held to account for things, it seems. I mean, and it's certainly it's come at a time where, as, as you mentioned, um, we've seen these authorities, which well, we, we're well aware now that these, all the, the kind of dominant authorities are corrupt, right? This is where we are. 
um, you know, teachers, nurses, doctors, justice, <laughs> politicians, every every sector, the media. We've we've come to a place now. We know that they, you know they you know they you know they're corrupt. So there's this idea of you know let's not just kind of point to working this. What teachers are corrupt. Well, I mean, there's incidents with everyone now. I mean, there's, you know, there's no space where it just seems like, you know, of course they're corrupt. <laughs> okay, I haven't heard that. There's silence, kind of, you know. That's all right. <laughs> I don't mean all teachers, though. I'm just saying it's more the system and the institution, the notion of, you know, these these uh, dominant space, dominant institutions are, you know just squeaky clean it, it it just isn't the case anymore i mean i think we, we can all i mean you know the big one for me is like when you go to the, your doctors you just i don't feel you know the relationship with myself and the doctor is just not the same it was a time where you just kind of see them as these kind of gods or something absolutely teaching at university i've got to report back on the foreign students when they're absent for more than a few days mm -hmm. without excuse. Yeah. I'm kind of, you know, like part of the international police now. Because supposedly they could be dangerous to us, mm -hmm. so we need mm -hmm. to kind of keep an eye. But I mean, you know, mm -hmm. things are delegated to me, mm -hmm. which I never dreamt that mm -hmm. one day it will <laughs> land on my doorstep. Mm -hmm. um, and that's happening as different. I think to be corrupt, you have to have some sort of measure of power, don't you? And uh, I don't know how much power teachers genuinely have these days, or people in, in education, you know? I think their power is at different levels. Mm. So, mm. Wanting ambition, careers, kind of mm. Mm. <laughs> Sure. But, Sorry, was there any discussion ever about like, doing a screening for the We've done that. So we we've shown to um, two sets of police. Um, I think the first set was from the kind of local neighbourhood engagement, um, and um, you know they were fairly okay. And then the second set was um, with um, Trident. I don't know if you know the Trident, but they are more. And um, I think the Gold Command was uh, person was there in the room. That was a bit nerve-wracking, I have to say, I felt. Because I'm used to just kind of speaking and then I realised I was actually... <laughs> I mean, they're actually in the room. <laughs> I mean, I, at the end of that, I really kind of think, oh, shucks. I mean, I'm sure my phone is being tapped now. Because, <laughs> you know, because they were actually being quite defensive, you know. I mean, because we kind of got lulled in there it to have a conversation which is going to be a dialogue and, and in fact actually I mean I think we're still going to continue the conversation but uh, I'm no longer of the opinion that this kind of idea of let's you know have conversations with the police is just going to go really well I, I'm more of the idea that well actually yeah, but some some of that does speak to who we've made this film for, because part of what we kind of realise, in a way, we, you know, yeah, we made this film for Marcus and Curtis and Mark Duggan and the family, up to a point, but we also actually made it for people who just a, 
total binary opposite of that. Like the police. Politicians, people who really probably need to see this film more because people from Broadwater Farm don't really need to see this film. They've lived it. Police officers need to see it, politicians, middle class people, you know, people who've just got no idea about the lives of someone like Mark Duggan. And because the thing is, I think what happened when Mark got shot was it was very easy to then say, right, this is what this guy is and paint a picture which, you know, is very sort of two-dimensional, which a lot of people just buy into immediately and then turn the page and turn the channel or whatever and watch whatever Coronation Street. And uh, we'd like to think that, you know, this film actually does go into that a little bit, show humanity and show people like, okay, these are lives and they're valid lives and they're valued lives and here's the humanity. And this is why it's important that when things like this happen, that, you know, there needs to be full accountability. Generally speaking, you know, if, if I'm screening a film, I'll always be at the back because you never want to be in the front because then you're, gonna, you're gauging the audience reaction from behind your head. But you, it's hard, you know. You, I, the only way, I, a lot of the time, the only way I can gauge the reaction to this film is from the little bits of humour where there's the laugh out loud moments, hopefully, or some... Because other than that, you don't really... You can't hear someone's silent emotion. It was quite important for, you, for, for Marcus to still look, be dignified and not just come over like he's completely sedated, you know, crying and, you know, I remember you having that conversation. So there's that thing of, in, I think in the film, it, it, uh, there's a balance. I mean, remember there's, actually there's, I mean, obviously we didn't make his, his kind of emotional outburst up, but it was good that that happened because we do see him doing quite violent kind of stuff in the early parts of the film. And so, in that respect, you see, you are seeing different dimensions of, of Marcus. And, you know, and I guess maybe this idea that, you know, well, he's soft, isn't, doesn't come into play because he's, 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 he did ex uh, violent acts and then went to prison. So the thing I think that really works in terms of how the other guys or the mandems see him is the fact that he did went in and do time and you know and he was he but stood, he's crying, he stood he's up crying because of his friend who's died. Oh, absolutely. No yeah. one even thinks that I don't think I can't really say I know exactly how what they're thinking about no, I don't think anyone thinks twice about that because that's his you know that's his brother that he grew up with and so with those guys a lot of the time, you know, crying and stuff like that. It's just one someone like Marcus, it's just one emotion that he can just choose from it seems uh, from a lexicon because that other emotion you can choose from is rage and you know and, and violent action. And you know, you when I was in court when he got sentenced, and I think the judge was quite lenient, but I also think the judge also felt, look, you know, you're lucky you got me on a good day. Because I remember one of the things the judge didn't like and he was clearly unnerved by it was um, CCTV footage of Marcus um, just prior to the riot breaking out where they're all on the steps of the of Tottenham police station and Marcus is with some of the other guys and you know in terms of the CCTV footage it looks like they're 
all about to have a nice day out at the fair. You know, Marcus is quickly smiling and joking with other guys and all the rest of it. And this judge said, you know, and he made a point of mentioning that, that you seem to be smiling and joking with your comrades before causing this wanton destruction. And, but what I knew from getting to know these guys is that doesn't mean anything. Just because he's smiling and joking, it doesn't mean what they, you know, because they, what you've got to think about is well, what's a conversation, you know? Uh, they're guys who can wear their emotions quite easily on their sleeves. And they can, you know, can, can, can it's certainly crying to see is a weakness of a lot of guys. I still think that was, and I, I was very surprised to see that, and I, I was glad that he was, uh, he was obviously happy with the union. I think that's a major problem, isn't it? It's true, it's but it's I true, but it also... the need to be able to get really upset and show it in another yeah, way. I think as Dion was touching upon, it depends on who the guy is, because if you're also a guy who's also known for doing X, Y, and Z, then, you know, I think also, people understand that. Yeah, it was genuine, but he's also on his way to prison as well, isn't he? You know, he will say that he says, you know, I tell this man everything. You know, he goes into this space where, where he sounds like a child, right? And he just and says that George just came into his life. And, and he's kind of expressed that to him. I mean, he doesn't like to accept, but it is true. <laughs> so that's why, you know, and that's. A, yeah. I think he's just scared, he's nervous of that, that relationship. Responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> There are plenty more documentary podcasts available online on our SoundCloud page www.soundcloud.com forward slash scottdoc. If you would like to watch the masterclasses with clips, then please head on over to our website www.scottishdocinstitute.com. Thank you.